want to get a bit of a disclaimer as the audio of this podcast is somewhat subpar. Okay, it, it's really subpar. There's a lot of distortion in my audio. We are trying out new software that allows us to do three-way interviews, and we have a great interview on today's podcast, and I did not find out that the my audio was that distorted until after the fact. Well, I didn't want to delete the entire interview as it was that good, and I want to honor the time of the person that I interviewed. So with that being said, I do apologize for the quality of this audio, but it is a really good interview. Well, welcome to this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster. And I am Chris Marone. And we have a lot to talk about today because, if, if you were not aware, we missed a podcast last week. We recorded it, but My one fault. of our audios didn't actually record. Hey, mistakes happen, right, Chris? I'm not, yeah. I don't want to mention names. It was my but. fault. I totally own it. I completely own that one. That was <laughs> I have no clue why my microphone didn't record and it was an epic podcast of Emmy proportions. It was it would have won us the Emmy. Last it week's really podcast we, because we talked about war crimes and Putin I think actually Putin was involved with uh, deleting your audio. He had to be. There's no other way. Our analysis was so on point to prove that, you know, that that Putin is a horrible person that well, hey, we're going to talk about that today as well. War crimes. We know this is war. We know this is, is people are losing their lives. People are being killed. So you might right. be thinking, isn't war crimes kind of redundant? Aren't you saying the exact same things? What what constitutes a war crime as compared to normally just blowing up people and killing people? I mean, I, it's kind of hard to draw that distinction. In my mind, I'm confused about that. But, Chris, I know you're going to bring some clarity to that situation. That we're going to talk about today. Also, a lot going on in the NFL. Uh, a lot of quarterbacks are trading teams. And I know, uh, Chris, your favorite quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, your high school buddy, uh, was in the news this last week. So we're going to cover that as well. But first... We have to pay the bills. And so this podcast is brought to you by Comedian of Law. We bring CLEs, Continuing Legal Education, classes that educate and entertain. Chris, when are we going to bring this to ASU? This whole idea of edutainment. Ooh, edutainment. I love that idea. You know, Joel, we should we should legitimately talk about that. Our our CLE program took a hit when I changed jobs at ASU, but oh, I think that... Are they even I still alive? Not really. Well, we do one-offs. Every once in a while, we'll do a CLE, but I think we can get something fun going. Let me let me reach up to the higher-ups and see what they want to do. Well, in all seriousness, I was telling my son, Zach, who's thinking about going to law school, I said, dude, it'll be the best three years of your life. Seriously, the <laughs> professors are so amazing at law school. I enjoyed it. Never before was I was I sitting in a class thinking, okay, I like this. I'm digging this. But in law school, it just was a, a totally new experience. I loved it. I'm encouraging him at least to not discount it because it's another three years of education. Say, no, dude, think about it as three years of a lot of fun. Yes, it's a lot of hard work. Even at party school, ASU, those are my words, not yours. Uh, but nonetheless, um, yeah, it, I assume you guys have good professors there. We are number one for innovation six years in a row ahead of MIT and Harvard. We are the best in the West. We're ranked number 25 amongst all other law schools in the nation, and we are number nine law school in public wow. law schools in the nation. We have the number three legal writing program, the number eight taxation program, and the number 25 criminal law program. I am not paid to say that. <laughs> what I'm hearing there is, you wouldn't accept me. I 
I couldn't go to ASU Law. Like, let's just <laughs> be right. real. Like, the only way I get in there is they pay me a salary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my son, I'm telling you, if he wanted to go to Harvard, he can go to Harvard. He is that kind of a student. Good He's for him. yet to even make a B in his life. I'm going, dude. Ooh. He has one semester. He's on his, in his last semester of undergrad. So the end is in sight. He, I think he can do it. Uh, but, wow, that is, a, is an amazing uh, accomplishment. I think he could be a Supreme Court justice if he chose to do that. Right. Of course, as a dad, what are you telling your kids? Dude, do whatever God has stars. called you to do. You have yeah. a mission, a ministry. Don't follow the money. Follow the mission. And then when you follow right. your, your mission, your ministry, money tends to follow that as well. But, hey, that's a different topic for a different day. Uh, but we, we do edutainment. We teach CLEs in a way that hopefully – the teaching points are sticky so that after mm -hmm. lawyers attend our class, they'll know that, okay, lying to the court, that's a bad thing. We won't do that because I attended Joel's class. I now know that that will stick with me. We, we try and teach <laughs> those kind of you know uh, points there that will just totally radically change the practice of law. Actually, we, we have a lot of fun in our, in our classes, mm -hmm. and we, we, we pose a lot of topics like this. I'll just throw this question out to you, Chris, since we are just kind of shooting the breeze before we get – into the nitty-gritty heavy stuff of the day. Lying. Do you think clients expect lawyers to lie for them? Yes. A hundred percent yes. All right. Have you, I shouldn't ask you to put you on the spot, but have yes. you heard lawyers where they have been in an awkward situation where you're talking to your client and you're preparing for a deposition and the client looks at you and says, well, what should my answer be? Is this where we try to, you know, just lie? Is this the point where we insert lying into the legal profession? I, right. I've had that kind of awkward tension with the clients or the kind of like, I'm just waiting for them to ask me that. But you, you think yeah. you think clients think that? Oh, 100%. When I did criminal defense, that's all they wanted me to do. They wanted we, I had a case once where a guy stopped into a 7-Eleven and robbed it. Right? Cameras everywhere. There's 7-Elevens, right? There's cameras everywhere. Right. For those of right. you who don't know what a 7-Eleven is, it is a, like, gas station mini mart type. It, it's like a really small Bucky's if you're from Texas. It's like a right. like a quick right. trip or a shelf, whatever. Um, Big we call them 7-Eleven? Yep. We call them the Stop and Robs. And so okay. so my, my client goes into the Stop and Rob. No mask. No nothing. This is pre-COVID days, but also when criminals are stupid. Pulls out his gun, points it at the clerk. The the literal camera is right behind the clerk's head looking onto the customer. Okay. So that way it gets a view of the cash register and the customer. So that way they're not shortchanging <laughs> right. it. The guy holds up the register, takes the money. I think he took like $57 and left. And he literally wanted me to go into court to deny and say that that's not my client. That that is some other Six foot tall Latino male with a scar down the side of his face. That is not the guy sitting next to me, and it was wow. clear. As day. It was clear as day. It was like, and he's like, "No, you need to go there and say that, and you need to get me off." And I'm like, "It's not wow. happening, not happening." All right, let's start off here with Egbert V. Bull. So we have on today's podcast Patrick Giacomo. Did I pronounce that correctly? It's actually Giacomo, anglicized, but yeah. Jackamo. All right, I am horrible. In fact, Chris and I were just talking before you got on here that we are not sure we can even pronounce the actual precedent that we're going to talk about here. Is it Bivens or Bevins? Uh, it's it's Bivens, and I also say I've spoken to counsel for uh, the the respondent in Egbert versus Boulay, and they've informed me that it is pronounced Boulay. 
Boulé. All right, that's why we have you on. Michael I was involved in a case. Good to know. I was involved in a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Hosanna Tabor, the EEOC, and I was actually lead counsel at the district court level on that case. And the thing about it, I would I would heard people talk about the Hosanna Tabor case, and they would say it's Hosanna Tabor. I thought I don't even know how to pronounce the case, and I'm on the case. <laughs> so. I, you know what? Uh, I guess we're there for the law, not necessarily for our, our grammar skills or our pronunciation skills. All right. Well, you are you are work for the Institute for Justice, who is representing uh, Egbert in, in this case. So tell us a little bit about what this case was about. So first of all, we, we don't represent any of the parties in this case. We filed an amicus in support of Boulay, okay. who's the pl- who's the plaintiff in this case. We actually have a handful of other cases that are pending at the Supreme Court on the same issue, but. What this case is really about is whether the Bivens Doctrine, which we'll talk about here in a second, actually exists anymore. And the real question for you know people who aren't steeped in this particular area of the law is essentially whether you can ever sue a federal police officer who violates your constitutional rights under any circumstances. That's what we're fighting about in these cases. I think this is shocking. Uh, you know, obviously I do constitutional law and, and I teach constitutional law and I went to law school and then when you read about some of the fact patterns that we're going to talk about here, and then you realize you can't sue the defendant for these wrongful actions. And that just at every level seems very, very wrong. So let, let's just quickly go over the facts of this particular case. So this was a an, an inn, uh, a smuggler's inn. I found that to be a highly ironic. This guy's license plate said smuggler. But go ahead and go over the facts of this case. Yeah, so, so Mr. Boulay is an interesting character, and he runs this bed and breakfast that's right on the Canadian border, so like 20 feet away from uh, his, his bed and breakfast, which is called Smuggler's Inn for, I think, obvious reasons for the proximity of it to the border. And he has rooms in this inn that sort of are themed to different smugglers like Al Capone and local smugglers, and it's all very tongue-in-cheek. Um, I love and this. he has been running, yeah, he's been running this inn for a while. And apparently he found out after he bought it that it had kind of historically been a place where people stay and then illegally cross the border on foot into Canada. Um, and, and so interestingly enough, what we found out that's not in the briefing because it had been redacted but did come out at oral argument is that on top of all this, um, Mr. Boulay was actually an informant for ICE this whole time. And so he was working with ICE in some capacity. We don't know exactly what capacity to provide certain information about guests who might be staying at this inn who were foreign nationals who may or may not be trying to go into or come back from Canada. Um, But none of that's really relevant to the actual issues in this case. And so specifically speaking, what this case is about is on one particular occasion, um, guests were coming to stay at the inn and um, a CBP agent whose name is Eric Egbert decided he wanted to ask some questions of these guests to investigate their um, immigration status. And the reason that that was particularly interesting is that these guests hadn't just crossed into America near the inn. They had flown into JFK. And so they'd come through a lawful port of entry. They'd then flown out to the West Coast and okay. were driving to stay at the Smuggler's Inn for reasons that I don't understand. Um, this CBP agent came onto uh, Mr. Boulay's property, his private property, to ask questions about this guest. He's tried to step in and stop the questions and tell the, uh, the agent that he had to leave. The agent shoved him down in his driveway, then asked a bunch of questions and ultimately left. And then... When Mr. Boulay complained to Mr. Egbert's superiors, what Eric Egbert did was retaliate by contacting the IRS, the Social Security Administration, the Washington Department of Licensing, and the County Assessor's Office, and all four of those agencies then audited the inn. So as a result of this, 
um, Mr. Boulay had to spend thousands of dollars defending himself in those audits. And so he turned around and sued Eric Egbert and said, you violated my Fourth Amendment rights when you shoved me down in my driveway. And you violated my First Amendment rights when you retaliated against me for complaining. And that's substantively what the case is all about. Whether he can sue the CBP agent who shoved him down in his driveway and then retaliated against him. Now, so this person, yes. Boulay, uh, as you said, was, was shoved down and then then faced these audits afterwards. Now, I got to tell you, this rings true to me. I had a very similar thing happen to me personally. I was involved in what's called the Pulpit Initiative, where we were attacking the IRS uh, and their, their, their 501c3 laws. We thought that the 501c3 laws were viewpoint discriminatory. They discriminated against you know churches, religious organizations, and what they could say from the pulpit. So we started this Pulpit Initiative where we were trying to encourage pastors and churches to speak out in favor or in opposition to any candidates. We didn't care, Democratic, Republican, whatever. We wanted them to do that. Uh, and so we got about 4,000 uh, pastors that did agree to do this on a given Sunday. And so uh, we took all 4,000 of those, uh, sent them to the IRS and said, come after these, um, uh, you know, these 4, pastors. They violated yeah. the 501c3 code. During this time, do you know of those 4,000, how many the IRS went after? These are ready to be made violations, all the exhibits and evidence necessary to find a 501c3 violation, 4,000. Do you know how many the IRS went after? I'm guessing none. Zero. Right. They said, nope, we don't <laughs> want to tangle with you on these terms. Yeah. So we were trying to just expose the IRS's law as being unconstitutional. During that same time period, do you know how many times I was personally audited? Twice. Four. It's like, wait a second. Is that just a coincidence? that I have not been audited my entire life. I attacked the IRS and boom, I'm audited twice during the same time period. So I see this and it, it rings true to me. Yeah, I mean, here it's not even a question. It's really it's right. something that's been admitted that this he only had the audits done because of this action. And so there's no question about it, which really sort of brings you into the the whole problem here with Bivens. And so if, if I can give a little bit of background to explain like what's going to yeah. happen next. Um, yes. Because I think most people think, well, of course, you can sue a federal agent just like you can sue a police officer or a mayor if they violate your constitutional rights. I mean, what's the point of having a constitution if you can't enforce the rights that it provides? But unfortunately, it's not that simple. In fact, it's anything but that. Right. And, uh, you know, your audience may be familiar with qualified immunity, um, which is an immunity that applies to all state, local and federal officers if you sue them for damages when they violate your rights. But what a lot of people aren't familiar with is something that we call federal immunity that comes from the restriction of what's called a Bivens cause of action. And to kind of you know, translate that into to normal English, Bivens is a case uh, from 1971 where the Supreme Court said you can sue federal officers if they violate your constitutional rights directly under the Fourth Amendment in that case. So there, Webster Bivens was in his apartment and six unknown named agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics busted in. They arrested him. They searched the apartment without a warrant. They threatened him. They took him to a courthouse and strip searched him. He sued them. The case made it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And at that time, the, the, uh, the government was arguing, hey, look, he can sue our agents in state court in New York, but he can't sue them directly under the Constitution because at the time you were able to sue uh, federal officers under, under state laws. Right. And the Supreme Court said, we don't care. The Constitution is what provides these rights, and you should be allowed to sue under them if even if there's an alternative remedy because the Constitution and the rights it provides in the Bill of Rights are incredibly important. And that was sort of the Crazy precedent talk. that started all this and why we, 
why we exactly why we call this a Bivens cause of action. And so unfortunately, between 1971 and now, and in particular, starting about the year 2000, the conservatives on the court have begun attacking the existence of Bivens and saying, we think that was judicial activism. Uh, we think that was essentially policymaking by the court. And so we don't like it. and We're going to curtail it here and there. That's all very wrong. In fact, where mm-hmm. there was judicial policymaking was in the creation of qualified immunity. And then Bivens itself was used as the case that was used to create qualified immunity a few years later in Harlow. But I don't, I'll get too into the weeds here. So let me just yeah. say the fight today is essentially over whether you can use Bivens at all, even in the original context, which was policing. So to the point about the First Amendment or religious liberties, the Supreme Court itself has never recognized Bivens directly is allowed in those contexts. And so they're very, very difficult, in fact, impossible to sue in many cases. So you have to find a case that already kind of fits into the four walls of Bivens, which should be just general run-of-the-mill policing done by federal agents. And as you guys know, there are more than 100,000 different types of federal police that are policing across the United States at all times. They're often working with state and local officers. They're pretty much everywhere. And so this is incredibly important, not just at the border, as in the Egbert case, but in any number of other cases that might involve, for instance, FBI agents or U.S. Marshals or Park Police or Secret Service agents, you name it. I mean, there, there's a police force for every possible federal agency. You've got U.S. Mint Police. Yeah. The, the Department of Education has police, so on and so forth. And so if you can't sue them, that means the law doesn't apply to them. The Constitution doesn't restrict them. And that's a huge problem. And so the way that the doctrine has kind of fallen into disrepair now is that the Supreme Court in the last decade or so has sort of called into question how close to Bivens do you have to be? And in a case called Ziegler versus Abbasi, it said, okay, we're, we're articulating a new test here. You can only sue a federal officer if it's in an already established context for Bivens, meaning Bivens are one of the two other cases that really are kind of not within the purview of this case. Right. And if it's outside of that, you can't sue them unless there's no reason for us to hesitate to extend a remedy. And the courts basically said, we're always going to hesitate if you're outside of the established context right. of Bivens. So right, right. what these cases come down to is whether the case falls inside of Bivens or not. All right, so this case dealt with police activity. Is the only argument that they are making, the reason why this is not covered within Bivens, because this is close to the border, so it involves border security issues, and that that somehow distinguishes this from other police brutality type of cases? Right, that's, that's the main argument here, and it gets a lot crazier than that. So here you actually have the First Amendment claim, which is kind of its own island and has problems of its own when you're coming to the legal arguments because like i said the court itself has never officially recognized a first amendment bivens claim which means when you when you say the first amendment are you talking about the retaliation with the irs investigation or audit that's that's the first amendment claim you're talking about correct yes and so you know you can also deduce from that that in another case for example if someone's religious liberty was violated or if they were stop from associating or one of the other um, rights that's provided under the First Amendment, they would equally equally be left out in the cold if Bivens is restricted away from the First Amendment. But that's actually the harder instance in this case. So we have the Fourth Amendment that's sort of front and center because like you guys set, have, have, have seen here, this is normal police stuff. It's, it's a CBP agent and it's near the border, but at the end of the day, we're talking about you know, a warrantless entry onto private property and the use of excessive right. force against an American citizen on his own property. And so... To Joel's point, yes, the, the lead argument that the government has taken, and another funny thing here is, up until the Supreme Court 
Um, this agent was not represented by the Department of Justice. So presumably his bills were paid by them, but he had private counsel. And we've seen this in a bunch of cases and I've never quite figured out how this decision process works. Some federal agents in these cases are represented by the Department of Justice right off the bat. The U.S. Attorney's Office represents them at the district court, right. then DOJ and D.C. at the appellate court, and then the SG in the Supreme Court if it gets that far. Yeah. But in half the other cases, they just get private counsel. I've never figured out why that's the case, but it's frustrating because in a case like this, you have private counsel to argue on behalf of the CBP agent at the Supreme Court. And then the SG comes into the case and files an amicus and gets to argue in oral argument time hey, basically, we completely agree with the CBP agent's uh, position Probably, here. And right, so they kind yeah. of get two bites at the apple when it comes to advocating before the court. But the, the arguments that we've seen between those two have kind of been interesting because the CBP agent's counsel got up in the Supreme Court and said, Bivens doesn't apply anywhere unless maybe against the DEA agent because Bivens itself, as you'll recall, involved the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which doesn't exist anymore. And so she's saying... When you're distinguishing between Bivens and any other case, you have to look at such a fine level of granularity that the, the exact agency and exactly what they did are the only things that would allow you to bring a Bivens claim. So if, essentially, if you're not Webster Bivens, if your name's not Webster, you're going to be out of luck. The Supreme right. Court, surprisingly, uh, had a very cold reception on that issue. Oh, God. And so when the Solicitor General got up, he kind of said, well, we, we actually have a more reasonable position than that. And we're saying that generally speaking, you can bring Fourth Amendment claims against federal police, but you can't do it in this border context because of national security and blah, blah, blah. And national security, as you can imagine, gets thrown around a lot in these cases. Yes, very much yes. so. But that's been, that's been essentially the main distinguishing feature in this case is, are border agents or is border security somehow different than domestic policing in a way that's relevant to deciding whether you can sue them at all? And this is also 30 miles away. The answer should be no. Well, so this is no, actually on, the... the the smuggler's in is like 20 feet from the border. I was going to say, the answer should be no. Yeah, Yeah, of course. I mean, the okay. Constitution right. doesn't draw that distinction, right? Yeah, it's like, right, it's on the border. I Googled it. I'm looking at it well, on interesting, Google Maps. It, yeah, the, the Constitution has never drawn that distinction of... And interestingly, the Chief Justice actually, <laughs> he actually said, like, are you, are you suggesting that we actually have a, a Fourth Amendment-free zone around the edge of the country when it comes to the border? And, you know, the answer was, of course, kind of hemming and hawing. Yes. Which is great. That's exactly what they're suggesting. Right, which is a great question to get from the, the chief justice. That's ex of, but that's exactly what they're That's what they suggested with the Patriot Act. Yeah, sure. Act. And, you know, the ACLU's talked about this, too, where you say, like, look, the way, you, the way you've talked about this means basically most people in the United States don't have constitutional rights because of their proximity to the border. Well, let's unpack. I want to see if I understand uh, how this law works. So you're saying this, uh, this federal agent committed these acts and violated this person's rights. Is this an official capacity lawsuit? So for our listeners, you know, you, there's an individual capacity lawsuit and an official capacity lawsuit. So are you suing this individual in his individual capacity because he did something wrong, or are you suing him in somehow in his official capacity? So these are all, uh, the, two, the two crucial things here are that these are all individual capacity suits. Um, basically because you can't sue in their official mm -hmm. capacity because of sovereign immunity concerns. And, right. and uh, they're all damages lawsuits because these are constitutional violations that have taken place already. So they're not ongoing. You can't get an injunction to stop them. You can't go to court and say, like, tell, tell uh, Agent Egbert to go back in time and not shove me down in my driveway. You know, historically for centuries now, the, right. the, 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 uh, the remedy for these things is money damages. Okay, so I'm just going to be right. playing um, devil's advocate here, trying to figure out the other side's argument. So if you can't sue them in court, 
Is there any other way in which you can get some money damages for what happened? Yeah, the answer is no in, in, in almost every single instance. And so what the other side will say, I'll give you the, the devil's uh, advocacy position here is, well, there are other types of potential alternative remedies. We don't know exactly whether they would apply and maybe they won't. But if they don't apply, that's because Congress decided that there shouldn't be a remedy at all. And that's sort of Congress's purview. And our response to that is, well, Congress can't exempt people from the Constitution because Congress itself is beholden to the Constitution. Um, and so you'll see this sort of policy arguments like, well, it would, it right. would bankrupt these poor agents. And in reality, research done by Joanna Schwartz and others, uh, professors on these subjects has found that anytime there is a case against a state, local or federal agent that somehow manages to result in a settlement or damages, 99.98% is the number that they found of the time. The government's paying these damages. The individual officers never pay these damages at all. They don't pay for their right. defense. It's either provided directly by the DOJ or paid for by them and private counsel represents them. And so it really has become this sort of bizarre world where essentially the, the theory here is that there's a separation of powers issue. And some of the conservatives on the court have said, well, it wasn't the court's place to create a damages remedy. That was policymaking. And so we don't like it for that reason. If there is going to be a cause of action, Congress should create it like it did in Section 1983 when it comes to state and local officers. But the problem is when you look at the, the way the courts right. address. I was going to say, but that's absolute crap because the court does need to, to do things because policymakers are beholden to the people that elect them into office. So they're not going to, you know, if the they're tough on crime or if their district is tough on crime, they are going to enact laws and policy that protect police or federal agents at all costs because their constituents want them to believe that they're tough on crime. It's oftentimes I worked in congressional campaigns for many, many years, and it's often being beholden to your individual constituents. You're going to create laws that may not be constitutionally sound, but they will help you get reelected. Yeah, yeah. In two so, years. so so that's obviously a problem. And actually, going back to Joel's last question about well, what what can you do? Is there anything you can do? Sort of what the government will often say in these cases is, well, you know, you can't sue this person, but we could we could if we wanted to, we could discipline them or we could fire them. Of course, they almost never do read actually never do. And so, you know, a few years ago, the, there was the last big Bivens case was called Hernandez versus Mesa. <laughs> and there a CBP agent in Texas shot across the Mexican border and killed a Mexican child because he said that they were throwing rocks at him. Um, the, when the Mexican child's family sued the officer, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and they basically said, well, you know, sorry, this is there's just national security implications and border implications and all the rest of it. And that means that there's no remedy at all for this child's family. And, you know, it's kind of funny because, like I just said, the court's theoretical basis for not liking Bivens is that they think it's somehow policymaking. But if you read Hernandez, you know, which is an opinion by Justice Alito, he goes through all these different types of policy to explain why he's not allowing this claim. So he says, well, there's national security and there's the concern that the executive branch can't control its own agents. And there's the concern of international relations. And there's these concerns about human trafficking and drug trafficking and blah, blah, blah. And historically, I think to... to to what Chris was saying, you know, we don't even really need to get into any of this policy because the, the irony of the way the court treats Bivens today is it's the exact opposite of how the court was treating these types of claims back at the founding. So even in the very earliest years of the Supreme Court, in 1804, the Supreme Court decided a case called Little versus Bahrain, where a naval captain had seized a ship under orders from the U.S. president. And the Supreme Court said that 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 order was given without statutory authority, and therefore the owner of the ship was able to sue the naval captain and get damages from him directly, individually. And the Supreme Court said, yes, that's fine, because we're the court, and all we look at is whether there was a law that was violated, and if so, 
we provide an appropriate remedy. Whether there's some wisdom or policy reason for why this guy should have done what he did, that's for Congress to sort out. It can indemnify him, and in fact, that's what Congress did. And so over the first century and a half of the American legal system, that's how things operated. It wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that the court started sort of turning all these knobs and deciding that, well, no, this is actually policy, even though for the first century and a half, what policy was in the court's eyes was thinking about whether it made sense to hold this officer accountable. That's all the court does today. Interesting. Well, you you listen to the argument. Uh, do a little bit of tea leaves reading for us. What, what did you make of the argument? How do you predict this this case to be decided? I am going to just assume this is going to come out in late June, uh, the, the decision. But did you, do you have a, an idea, a feeling on how the court's going to rule? Yeah. So uh, it's always really hard, as you know, to 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 do these these sort of guessing games with the court because it's so opaque. But here, I think, you know. Listening to the argument was very surprising and, and sort of a lot of us who are on the other side of these issues expected the court to come in guns a-blazing against the, the plaintiff and say, you know, how, you know, this is the border. How could you think that this would be allowed? Of course, the First Amendment's way outside the purview of Bivens, so on and so forth. But what happened instead was the, the CBP agent's uh, attorney got up first and right off the bat, Justice Thomas asked her, you know, how is this case different from Bivens? And we kind of thought, well, this is going to be a softball that she's going to crank out of the park. And so she gave her kind of canned answer. And then he said, right. no, but I, I don't really understand here because, yeah, the border is nearby, but that's almost incidental. If he was, you know, 500 miles away from the border, the issue of, you know, a shoving down an American citizen on their private property seems to be exactly the sort of thing that Bivens said you couldn't do or that you could be sued for doing. And I, it, it seemed pretty clear that she was not prepared for this line of questioning. But what was more remarkable was then after Justice Thomas, we had five other justices in a row essentially make these same points and kind of dig into it, including, you know, Justice Breyer saying there are 83 at least federal agencies that have men that carry guns and badges. You know, I, I could go through all 83, but I'm not going to. Will you just tell me, you know, does, does this sort of claim, is it available against the U.S. Mint Police? She says no. He says, is it available against the FBI? And she says no. And I think at that moment, it was almost like the Citizens United questioning where you say, could you ban a book? And the answer is yes. And when you say something that radical, now it's kind of hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And from that point on, the court was just hammering this issue of saying, right. you're basically saying Bivens is completely gone. And we've never said that. Um, and so from our perspective, it was kind of surprising because the court in the last few years has sort of been angling its way towards, if not actually overruling Bivens, because that creates all these stare decisis issues, really cabining it to its facts in a way that would essentially neuter it forever. And so I, th I think there wasn't much discussion on the First Amendment. And frankly, uh, the plaintiff's attorney said, I know that that's the harder hill to climb here. So I suspect if I had to guess, what we will see is a decision that says, you know, basically no First Amendment Bivens. But in the Fourth Amendment context, you can bring domestic policing Bivens claims. And it's really just a question, I think, in this case of whether the court says this was a domestic case or this was a border case, because in Hernandez, it had said the border thing where the guy shot the right. kid. And so here the line has to be drawn somewhere between those two. And hopefully the court will draw it on the right side here, which is the side that favors Boulay. Interesting. So, yeah, it almost sounds like is there a border exception? I mean, we just talked about the, the Zubeda case earlier today where the court, I surprisingly to me, by the numbers, uh, you know, Breyer wrote the majority opinion saying, no, you can't even ask, do they even have a CIA site in Poland? And so if they're that concerned about national security, uh, I'm a little concerned about what they might say here. But I also think the court, are, the court 
They're really good BS detectors. If they sense an argument is BS, they call it for what it is. And maybe that's what they're doing here with that, that argument. Saying, no, this is not about that. This is about police brutality, and they don't get a pass because they are within 20 feet of the border. Yeah, and I, I hope that's the case. And so, you know, it is, they kind of probed it from both sides. So they talked about, you know, proximity to the border, and they actually talked about, well, if it's not near the border, but it's a CBP agent who happens to be doing something else miles and miles away from the border. And in both cases, the court in its questions suggested that, you know, it was not going to sort of accept this broad um, protection for anybody who happens to have a hat on that says CBP, regardless of what they're doing or where they're doing it. But I think another, an, a, a couple other things that sort of color what the court did in this case is, one, when the CBP agent filed the petition for cert, he presented three questions to the court. One was essentially whether there's a Fourth Amendment Bivens claim for this border context, whether there's a First Amendment Bivens claim. And then number three was whether Bivens should be overruled. And when the court granted cert, it explicitly did not allow that third question in. So it said we're only granting on questions one and two. We're not going to visit, revisit whether Bivens should be overruled. And so it was kind of bold then for Good. the the counsel for the CBP agent to nevertheless get up and essentially say, Bivens is dead and you should never apply it anywhere <laughs> under any circumstances. But a- another thing that, that I want to highlight for you know, my own self-interest, but because I think it's really important to the broader conversation here is, you know, the Institute for Justice has now filed three different Bivens cases in this policing context, and two of them are still pending, and the court's kind of been hanging on to them since January. So we suspect that it will do something with them probably GVR them after it decides the Egbert case. Um, And in all three of those cases, you had wildly different fact patterns, but the one thing that kept them together was you've got a federal police officer of some sort who's violated someone's constitutional rights in the domestic policing arena. And so at the same time, the Solicitor General is getting up to the Supreme Court in Egbert and saying, well, we're not taking this radical position that Bivens doesn't exist. The Chief Justice said, well, give me a hypothetical where your office would say Bivens does exist. And what he said was, well, it would be a case involving the FBI or the U.S. Marshals um, that is in the search and seizure or excessive force context, something that involves domestic policing. And we said, hey, you know, that sounds exactly like our case, Muhammad versus Waker, that's currently pending before the Supreme Court where the Solicitor General is on the other side arguing that uh, a St. Paul police officer who's acting as an FBI uh, task force member as, and is a deputized U.S. Marshal had our client framed and arrested to protect a witness in a domestic law enforcement investigation. And so what's changed between your opposition of our petition in in Muhammad versus Waker and now? And at the same time, we also have a case pending out of the the Fifth Circuit where um, a DHS agent held our uh, client at gunpoint and tried to shoot him because our client was asking questions about the DHS agent's son's potential involvement in a drunk driving accident the night before. And in both of those cases, Um, They went before a district court that denied the officers qualified immunity, but then they went to the fifth and eighth circuits and those courts said, well, qualified immunity aside, because these guys work for the federal government, you just can't sue them at all under Bivens because your case is not exactly like Bivens. And both of the courts actually used the phrasing or something like it to say, this case is not exactly like Bivens. And it treated them that way and splitting the hairs. And so this just should illustrate that the court knows that there's a broader issue for the policing context. And everybody should understand that even if the court picks these sort of esoteric cases to advance the law, you need to understand that wherever you are right now, there's a federal police officer that's probably within 20 miles of you. And if this goes the wrong way, he can violate your constitutional rights and you will have nothing to say about it. You can't go into an American courtroom and tell a judge or jury what happened and get any sort of remedy. Which is scary. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll be paying attention to those cases. 
let us know if cert gets granted on either of those two cases we love to follow them maybe have you back on to talk about them when the court uh, uh, hears those cases i thank you so much for joining us today i appreciate it and best of luck to you in the future all right thanks guys also in legal news, Chris, we have the Supreme Court has been in session uh, the last couple of weeks, issuing opinions, hearing cases. Let's just quickly talk about some of them. Uh, U.S. v. Zubeda. I know we have followed this case. This case involved the Jason Bourne lawsuit. I say right. Jason Bourne because when I saw the issue in this case, the issue was perfectly written. I thought Hollywood wrote the issue. It was whether or not. You can have interrogate and take discovery, whether a party can take discovery of alleged clandestine CIA activities. Chris, yep. that sounds like Hollywood. You're ready to go. That's oh. a great movie. Alleged right. clandestine CIA torture activities. Hey, let's uh, bring Jason Bourne in and talk a little I bit know. about what, what. So, what kind of torture is allowed? Have you have you ever thought about what kind of torture you could withstand? Was, yeah, I've been married for 10 years. <laughs> wait a second, wait a second. Here. So are we going to be editing this podcast afterwards? I don't know about they're going to leave that in or not, but I'm not sure that being married for 10 years counts as one of the alleged clandestine torture activities. I'll have to read the case and the footnotes. Maybe it's mentioned in there is it somewhere. Maybe, I don't it could know. Be, it could, you, I, I would like to think that I could withstand some level of torture. I also realize that I am a pretty pretty plump prissy white male that i don't know if i could right. withstand a lot of like I'd, I'd ask for a manager very quickly i don't know <laughs> I don't, yeah hey a manager manager this person is not treating me well i'm not sure that's gonna work out well i need to talk to the manager of the black site i, I, I watch these these movies right with jason Bourne oh, out yeah. there or tom cruise or someone that's getting beaten up and tortured and i'm just wondering to myself how quickly would i fold I, I oh. have no idea. On some of these, you think that you could withstand a little bit, like like waterboarding. Now, I don't right. know. Have you ever seen this? This is going to be graphic here, but have you ever seen these scenes where someone is being killed on TV? I'm not talking about a real murder, but on TV, and right. they, they're like being held underwater or they're being choked, and they, they wait until the person stops jostling or, or, or jerking with their movements. And once that person stops jerking with their movements, then the killer lets the person go. Do you know what right. I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why doesn't the person stop jerking earlier? Fool right. them. Why is that not a thing? Uh, probably because the that is for pure uh, audience <laughs> service. I uh, I see. So so no lie. I um I did free diving for a lot of years, and a big thing in free diving is shallow water blackout, and that's when you're coming okay. up and you get almost to the surface and you immediately blackout and you drown. Unless you're diving right. with a buddy that can grab you and pull you back up. Shallow water blackout's a big thing. Um, when you're drowning, you're not convulsing. Your body, though it's fighting against the um, the the lack of oxygen, it conserves it conserves energy. So your body either blacks out or you you don't really kick against it because you're trying to conserve all that oxygen to preserve yourself for as long as possible. Yeah, this is a made for TV moment. They're fighting against somebody is the, the reason why they struggle. But, yeah, if you gave up ah. early and, and fooled that entry-level henchman, that $71,000-a-year henchman, then, you know, you're going to you're gonna be able to, to get away with some things in TV land. 
Well, Chris, I like how you actually brought some real pertinent information to this podcast. This is life-saving information. If you are, if you're at a beach and you're looking for someone that's drowning, the person who is drowning is not raising their hands and jumping up and down in the water screaming, I need help. No, they're bobbing because as you said, they really don't have the ability to wave their hand and say they're drowning. And you got to look for the calm of person, not for the person acting very hysterically. All right, back to this lawsuit, U.S. v. Zubeda. Zubeda claimed that he was held at a CIA site in Poland where he was subjected to enhanced interrogation techniques, and so he filed a lawsuit in Poland to seek to hold someone accountable for what happened to him, and then they wanted to take discovery from the United States government about these alleged clandestine activities. Well, actually, more than that, they also wanted discovery as to whether or not there was a CIA site in Poland. Well, this issue goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Breyer wrote the majority opinion this last week, and they held that, no, you cannot. These are state secrets. You cannot ask, you cannot have, take discovery over these alleged clandestine activities. You can't find out how they do waterboarding, how that technique works. Heck, you can't even ask the government, do you have a CIA black site Right. In Poland. You can't even ask, even though that's public knowledge, having the government admit to it is another level of concession that would threaten national security. Right. And so the court said this, that these are state secrets, and the state secrets privilege permits the government to prevent disclosure of that information. Anything to add to this case? I actually really liked how Breyer said it was a state assumption that they had a black site. It wasn't it wasn't public knowledge, even though it's been filed in the case. Like even in the highest level, he's deny he's 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 pretty much going. It's allegedly a black site, but there's no unequivocal proof to say it is. So I thought, I mean, that goes to Breyer's I, candor as a Supreme Court justice, right, which I'm sure right. we'll talk about um, when we get into the his his retirement and his replacement. And I was just I, – I laughed at myself where he's like, we've been going through pages and pages and pages. Nobody's denying that this guy was tortured in a CIA black site the whole nine yards. But it's like you're still going to say allegedly. You're still you're still going <laughs> right, to hold right, – right. You're still going to hold allegedly up there. Okay, I got you. Which is an interesting departure because during oral argument on this case, the justices actually referred to the techniques as – torture, which was right. a new ground. The Supreme Court before that had not a a referred to those alleged clandestine activities as actual torture. But here the court is saying, yeah, torture. Can they take discovery over the torture techniques that this person was subjected to? Well, the Supreme Court said no. Other states of secrets of privilege prevents that. All right. Also, no. recently, the Supreme Court held in Cameron v. EMW Women's Surgical Center. Now, Chris, this case involved Abortion, and whenever you have the word abortion and Supreme Court, you get feathers ruffled. Everyone has their thought, their opinions, and so you look at this case and you say, "Oh, this deals with abortion. I gotta take my size." Well, not so fast, because even though this case dealt with abortion, it dealt with a right. procedural matter, and so it really isn't going to change the the legal landscape on the right to life. So, what happened in this case was Kentucky passed this law regulating abortion, I believe, during the second trimester, if you can refer to it in that way, to <clears throat> regulate dilation and evacuation procedures. Well, this law, a lawsuit was filed challenging this law, and right. during the, the early stages, the Kentucky AG said, 
you know what, I'm going to bow out of this case. We don't need several different state defendants here. You already have the state's health secretary here defending this law. I'm just going to bow out. But as I'm bowing out at the district court level, I'm going to reserve my rights to come back in at a later stages for appellate reasons. So if I don't like what the state's health secretary is doing in defense of this law, I reserve the right to come back in. But as of now, we don't need all these different cooks in the kitchen. Right. Right. So what happened was the case went up to the Sixth Circuit and Kentucky lost. And the state's health secretary said, okay, I'm good with that. I'm no longer going to defend this law. So I'm not going to appeal it to an en banc, the entire Sixth Circuit panel. Or I'm not going to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, the Kentucky AG, who changed hands now, so a different party, said, wait a second here. We need to appeal this to the U.S. Supreme Court because it's a pretty friendly court up there for right-to-life issues. And so that is the issue with the win before the U.S. Supreme Court. Can the Kentucky AG come back in and intervene in a lawsuit after his side lost at the Sixth Circuit? Can he then intervene to appeal that case? Chris, what we, oh, Chris any thoughts on this case? Yeah, I mean, you and I both have our opinions on abortion we both have we've discussed it plenty of times on the podcast this is a procedural issue like we saw uh two weeks ago with um the immigration issue and the discussion about daca with trump this is a procedural issue so we need to not get our emotional tie of the issue into the case though it is dealing with abortion and that's a hotbed issue and we all have opinions and everybody has an opinion and Everybody's a constitutional expert and everybody's a woman's health expert when it comes to abortion. This is not about abortion. This is about whether or not the AG can enter, can leave, and then re-enter the case. That's all it's about. It is a very simple procedural rule. And I think we saw that in the decision, which was 8-1, to where the only dissent was Sotomayor. Um, And everyone else agreed that this is a procedural issue. and, And yes, the Kentucky AG can jump back in because... That's the job of the AG, right? Is to defend state right, laws right. in court. Like, do your job. I'm, go. This this isn't Joel Oster, private citizen, trying to intervene right. in the case. Say, hey, I like this abortion law. Someone needs to defend it. This is the state's attorney general who only right. withdrew from the case at an early level because, well, you don't need to have five different state defendants all making arguments in front of the court. That you just don't need that. We, we, I, I've been involved in cases where we have a lot of different parties on one side, and sometimes right. it gets really cumbersome. How many different briefs get filed? What gets said in these briefs? No, we don't need that. We just need one cook in this kitchen. But right. what if that cook changes hands? You start off with a Mexican you know, dish, uh, it's a Hispanic flavor, and now you got someone cooking broccoli. Yeah, get that cook out of the kitchen. I want the right. Mexican food. And so that's right. what's going on here, the AG uh, or you know, switched hands, and they did not like what was going on with not defending this law, and so they they, they intervened, and the court said in the eight to one decision, yes, right. you can do that. Now, I guess this case does have real life consequences because if the law had been struck down, it then would be off the books, and so when the Supreme Court does rule later this term on the two abortion cases before the right. Supreme Court, it's going to change the legal landscape. If this law was already off the books, well, Kentucky would then have to repass that law. Right. I am just thinking Kentucky would have no problem repassing, repassing that law if the Supreme Court changed the legal landscape. And so I, I don't think there's much real-life implications from this case, but that is how the court ruled. All right. We also talked about last week, so we're going to talk about it again. This is what got Putin all upset with us and found some way to go into your computer and delete the audio file. 
We were talking about war crimes. Now, Chris, I am fascinated by this because when I started reading articles about Putin might be liable for war crimes, in my mind, I'm going, why the might? I mean, he invaded a country. How is that not de facto a war crime? You are bombing people. You are killing people. Right. Last I checked, that's a crime. Right? These right. people didn't start it. It is not self-defense. And so that being said, uh, I was fascinated by this issue of war crimes. Chris, what is the difference between a normal activity of war and a war crime? Why is this a big deal? So war crimes are usually assessed against the aggressor of an armed conflict. For example... What the Germans did in Nazi Germany, obvious war crimes, right? But what if Germany okay, had right. won? What if Germany had won the war? It wouldn't have been a war crime. They would never have been tried for a war crime. We wouldn't have had the, the reaction that we did because what the U.S. did to Japanese internment camps, not on the same level of Holocaust internment camps, I'm not making that comparison, but under the Geneva Convention... Right, unlawful deportation or transfer, uh, unlawful confinement is a war crime, which is what we did to the Japanese. But it's not a war crime because we won. And so war crimes. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who works over at the Red Cross IHL International Humanitarian Law, which is the section of law that that governs war crimes. And it it really comes down to who is the victor, and who is the perceived okay. victor, because. And he, and he brought up all sorts of things. He said the conflict in Israel and Palestine right now, depending on who wins, if ever, right, if, if there's ever peace right. between Israel and Palestine, there's war crimes to be had on both sides. And so right. it depends on who the victor is, but it essentially is everything that we talked about. It's willful killing. It's torture or inhuman treatment. It's willful causing of great suffering or serious injury to health. It's destruction of property. Russia just bombed a hospital. It's compelling prisoners of war to do stuff. It's um, depriving a prisoner of war of fair and equal treatment. It's uh, uh, unlawful deportation. It's uh, taking of hostages, right? A, hot ta okay. a hostage situation is a war crime. So if so, all of these things are considered war crimes. What I hear you saying is, is really, I, I'm going to take three different key elements to classify something as a war crime. First of all, that you were, we have to be talking about someone who lost the war. If you won the war, right. no one's going to enforce a war crime against you. You are right. the victor. And so might the victor also have engaged in war crimes? Probably, Probably, maybe we don't know. It might be subjective, which we're going to find out here in point three. It is entirely yeah. subjective, but nonetheless, uh, you, you got to lose the war in order for the war crime issue to right. be somewhat relevant. Let's it, it, right on that point. Number two. And this is going to be a, a non-starter. You probably this is so obvious to you, but a war crime has to involve a war, some kind of armed kind conflict of yep. between two different nationality countries. It has to be some kind of battle going on. That's why we are now analyzing, okay, this is a war crime. The third point, which is what you touched on, is that the conduct must have constituted some kind of serious violation of the laws and customs of international and humanitarian law that has been... Right. 
codified, criminalized in some kind of treaty or, or customary law. So there are three of them that are out there, the big ones. you got right. the, um, the Hague Convention, you have the Geneva Convention, and then you also have the Rome Statute. There might be more, but those are the big ones. Those and they the kind of yeah. codify normal war-going activities. And yeah, I, I've read them. And one of them actually was, you, you kill someone. Well, okay, yeah. that's every single war activity. So that's why I'm saying it's somewhat subjective. That being said, you're probably not going to hold someone liable for a war crime for killing someone. It has to reach no. that other level of shock where the, the, the international community says that's not right. For example, bombing a hospital. No. Why are you bombing a, a civilian hospital? That is just not oh. good. And, and we don't like that. Obviously, the Holocaust, you know, concentration camps. No, right. that, that violates every kind of norm and custom. Anything that deals with genocide or picking on a certain race to extinguish that race, that'll be a, a considered a war crime. So the issue here, and this is why it's important, if Putin has been engaged in a war crime and the u.s government says yes we believe putin has engaged in a war crime now we have kind of put the onus on us to get involved in a serious way right war crime is going on and so now it's gonna be very hard for the united states to say we're not going to get involved here well why not there's war crimes going on there's a concentration camp type of thing going on somewhere these are serious allegations why are you standing on the sidelines? So when the NATO countries say, yeah, there's a war crime going on and Putin is doing it, that's a serious matter because it really requires and necessitates some kind of involvement into this war. And people are very reluctant to get into a war with a power country like Russia. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been the standpoint of the United States that we're trying to be, we're trying to support Ukraine as much as possible in a peaceful, nonviolent way, because we don't want to get involved in a boots on ground battle with Russia. We, the, the ramifications of that is going to be longstanding in the international community. Um, but the minute that a war crime has been found, the UN, NATO, the United States, all of our allies, we have no choice, but to start sending troops and, actual military i mean we're sending military assets right we're sending bullets we're sending guns we're sending right. f-18s we're sending those mil- but now we're going to equip them with american trained soldiers and i've been accused many many times over my life of being anti-military because of my political belief and and that's false on their behalf i do believe that the american soldier marine airman coast guardian um or space force individual are some of the most heavily and well-trained military units in the world i have a great deal of respect for our armed forces i just wish we didn't use them as much as we did and this is going to be another situation where i don't want to see more i don't want to see a broadsword response to a scalpel need and right right and right now putin is forcing a lot of people's hands to fight the war the way putin wants it to be fought which is with broadswords and not doing this diplomatically and i could say that sitting in my little house in phoenix arizona and not being in ukraine and not being in russia and not being in dc and i understand that i have very little knowledge when it comes to that but it's always my hope that less life will be destroyed and getting these conflicts handled well, there you go. Let's just hope Putin didn't hear that and somehow cancels yeah. this podcast again. again. I don't know. We'll have to see what, what happens <laughs> this next week. 
All right, moving on now to courtroom quarterback. Football is over with. I get that, and and but there's nothing. And basketball actually is on the horizon, and so the Big Twelve tournament, nah. the conference tournaments are coming up, which means March Madness is right around the corner. But still, what is the big talk in the sports world? It is still football. Football, football reigns supreme, and there's a lot of going on with football this last week. Let's start with. Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson, you know, the incredible quarterback there for the um, Houston Texans. Yep. He, the, the Chiefs almost drafted him. I was kind of thinking the Chiefs should have drafted uh-huh. Deshaun Watson instead of Patrick Mahomes. Wow, that shows what an idiot mm. I am or how brilliant, you know, Andy Reid is. Yep. But Deshaun Watson obviously is involved with this huge legal matter where I believe 22 different masseuses have alleged that he sexually assaulted them in some way during the massage process. His lawyers defended him by saying, oh, no, we have another 20 masseuses who said that Deshaun acts quite fine during massages, to which the rest of the entire world responds, how does anyone have 40 masseuses? (laughs) That is just not natural or normal. Chris, I don't know how many masseuses. How is that a valid? How is that a valid argument? How is that like these twenty people said you sexually assaulted me? But wait, I have twenty people over here that says I've never sexually assaulted them. Like that is not a valid argument. That is not like you can sexually assault one person and not sexually assault another person. That it, I, 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 I hate well, that argument. argument. I hate that. Sh- yeah. But if the argument is that this is his modus operandi, he has a pattern, but he does not do this pattern with over half the people, then why is he only doing this pattern with a, with, with a, a smaller percentage of the whole? And at 50%, if you don't do this 50% of the time, I could see that being somewhat of an argument, but I get your point. Um, right. My basic, basic take is who has 40 they basically, he admitted there's 40 masseuses. Who, who has 40 masseuses? That means he is looking for something, and when yeah. he doesn't get it, he moves on to the next masseuse. I don't know well, why the right. lawyer thought that was a good response. Well, nonetheless, on Friday of this week, um, there will be depositions taken. The court allowed for him to depose. Now, Chris, for our non-lawyer listeners here, that is a problem. Whenever you have yeah. an ongoing criminal matter – and right. an ongoing civil matter, that's really tough for the lawyers because we can't allow our clients to testify about a matter when you have a pending criminal charges. And right. so you always have your clients plead the fifth. And so during always. this deposition this Friday, they're going to have Deshaun Watson plead the fifth. So, Chris, what does that look like to you? Is that a bad look for Deshaun Watson? No, because we're innocent. Well, on the civil side, a little bit. On the criminal side, not a bad look. And overall, really not a bad look whatsoever. You plead the fifth because whether you're guilty or not, the courts cannot compel you to testify against yourself. That is literally the source of the Fifth Amendment. So it is the smartest thing to do. If you remember correctly, we were talking, man, this was almost a year ago, I want to say, or right at the beginning of the podcast, about um, the parents of the alleged guy boyfriend that killed his girlfriend out hiking 
I can't remember the name of the case, right. but then he then he was found right, dead like right, three right. weeks later. And the parents are like, you know, under advisement of our lawyers, we're not going to talk about anything. We're not going to say anything. Essentially pleading the fifth. It's because it's the smart thing to do. Fish get caught by the mouth. And you yes. and I are and classically you, it, trained to ask the same question in different ways to elicit different responses. I, I You make a right. great point. In other words, totally innocent people on a matter that could say something. And lawyers, right. prosecutors can twist that. They can have their right. own interpretation of what that means. And they might even have a political agenda to, to seek to prosecute you because that's what the public wants. And so if you just keep your mouth shut, right. it's not even possible for your words to be taken out of context. And so I do like the idea of pleading the fifth in a purely legal manner. But we're not talking right. about a purely legal manner. We're talking about here an NFL player whose career right. window for earning bajillion dollars is is not indefinite it's gonna to come to a nope. close here and so nope. uh he is one of these quarterbacks who can command 50 million dollars a year he's that good and he's not gonna make anything because of these lawsuits so he has to worry about what does this look like to the public when he pleads the fifth well i, I don't know I, I guess maybe the thought there is Whatever it looks like is better than a grand jury conviction. He needs this Correct. to be over with and over with soon. And so plead the fifth, don't feed the grand jury, and then settle out, and then get traded and maybe live to see another day in the NFL. Do you think that's their, their lawyer's game plan? I, I think that's the smartest game plan there is, is to to lay low, do your settlement, and then you know live to fight another day in the NFL. Settle for... Whatever four, five, six, ten million, twenty million, whatever you're going to have to pay out to these twenty masseuses, and then go into the NFL and go make a gajillion dollars and and get away. And unfortunately, and I hate I hate giving that advice because I think if you sexually assaulted somebody, you need to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. If you are out there being a sexual predator, it is our duty as men to hold other men accountable for being douchebags, for lack of a better term. Right. Right. He should be held accountable to the full extent of the law. If he sex- he should not be getting a free pass because he has money to pay these women off. So if he if he right. if he's guilty of it, you know, homeboy needs to to spend some time in jail. He needs to understand that there's consequences to his actions. Um, but for him, if I was his lawyer, and yes, I've been the lawyer representing less than reputable people before. I would want to settle as quickly as possible, get this over as quickly as possible, because some other player, sports athlete, politician is going to pop up in the news doing something just as stupid, if not stupider, and he's going to be out of the news really quick. The case that came to my mind was Bill Cosby. So Bill Cosby, yeah. his his case was in the news this last week, so it's, it's, right. it's timely here. But this case came to my mind where he was alleged to have done some things to these women, giving them certain drugs yep. uh, that I don't even know the name of the drugs, but you know to to make them unconscious so that he could rape them. That was right. the allegation. Right. Well, the the prosecutor said, "I'm not going to." bring charges against you here. At least he made a public statement to that that effect. And so his lawyer allowed Bill Cosby to testify during a, a deposition over this matter. Now, when I right. heard that, I thought, how? How would you allow your client, Bill Cosby, to testify about these, about these matters? If I were the lawyer, I would want an ironclad waiver right. of rights to ever bring any charges against my client. Yep. Because once Bill Cosby says those things, 
Now, we all can talk about how it's good from the public standpoint that this person be held accountable. I get that aspect of it. But as far as himself, Bill Cosby, he's ruined. His career is done. When he testifies to these things during a deposition, even though it might have been sealed, no, it's never permanently sealed. You just admitted to raping someone. You have to know your days are numbered now in the in the public's limelight. You are now a villain because you raped yeah. someone. And I, I cannot imagine why the, the lawyer, unless the lawyer really had it out for Bill Cosby, why the lawyer allowed him to do that. I, and I think it, it is. The lawyer had it out for Bill Cosby or the, wow, or it could be incredibly sp- I I don't know. There's no win to this situation for Bill Cosby, so it's got to be ineffective assistance of counsel right off the bat. But, you know, there's – yeah, Bill, I don't know, buddy. You got swindled at the end of the day. Well, what happened – what happened in his case this last week was the prosecutor appealed that decision that threw out. So his conviction was thrown out by yep. a Pennsylvania Supreme Court saying, look, the prosecutor made some public statements saying we're not going to prosecute him for these charges. We're closing this case. And only then did his lawyer say we are going to allow him to testify during this deposition. So the lawyer relied upon those statements yep. of not prosecuting. And that's the only reason why he testified. We want to preserve that kind of working in the legal world. Uh, and so the Pennsylvania Supreme Court threw out those convictions. They right. appealed that to the U.S. Supreme Court. And just this last week, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case. So that right. matter is settled. And Bill Cosby is a free man, though I doubt you're going to see him doing any comedy specials any time in the near future. Right. And and this goes right. again to prosecutors' misconduct, right? They, they, they essentially lied to Bill and his lawyers and said, no, 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 confess to all this stuff and we won't prosecute. And then turned around and prosecuted for political gain. Right, right. So yes, that is a that was an interesting move. Maybe a good move on their part because then Bill Cosby at least spent three years in jail I for guess. doing these heinous crimes, and he did lose his career. So maybe at in the end of the day, a positive result occurred. No one's feeling sorry for Bill Cosby Not here because he he testified, so he did it. Uh, he's just getting off on a technicality, but nonetheless, that is the Bill Cosby matter. All right, yeah. let's go back now to your homeboy, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers. Oh. And so there's a lot of movement now in the NFL. Quarterbacks are changing teams. And word came out this last week that the Packers re-signed Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers said, I'm going to play another couple of years here with the Packers. So that ended the speculation that he might move to a different team. So, Chris, here is the offshoot. The Packers will now continue their dominance of the regular season. Uh, so <laughs> why, why this big clamor over Aaron Rodgers? What has he done lately no. during the postseason? Nothing. I mean, the Green Bay Packers just paid $200 million to ensure that they will lose to the Niners in the playoffs. And I love it. I'm here for this, right? I'm here for, for the Packers to lose to the Niners, but... There's no way Aaron Rodgers is a $200 million quarterback. Not not even no. a little bit. And now that he has set the bar at $200 million, you're going to start seeing these stupid, ridiculous, right? Tom Brady's going to come out of retirement to get $100 million for one season with the Seattle Seahawks. Or, right. Like, it's going to be absolutely ridiculous because that's going to become the industry standard for mediocre quarterbacks. 
I know with no recent postseason success. In fact, I'll say beyond no postseason success recently, he's been a flop during the postseason. I mean, mm-hmm. his decision two years ago during the championship game led to their uh, their, their loss when he decided not to run it in, but to throw the ball in the double double coverage, and the right. ball fell incomplete. Right. And uh, and then this year, uh, don't even get me started about how bad he played against the, the 49ers. Right. Well, here's the interesting thing. All this controversy with Aaron Rodgers started – I believe three years ago right. when the Packers drafted that they traded up to draft Jordan love in the right. first round. Jordan love was going to be the heir apparent there at quarterback for green Bay. Apparently that ticked off Aaron Rodgers that they would draft his replacement. And people say that that was a mistake because it ticked off Aaron Rodgers. But my perspective was, well, did you see how well Aaron Rodgers played after this draft, after he yeah. was ticked off, apparently he was dogging it for the years before because there was a marked difference in how well he played, of course, during the regular season we're talking about, after, so maybe he deserved to get a little right. bit of a disrespect he did. because he was dogging it before. Right, he totally did. He, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, when he was the only game in town for the for the pack, he could he could half butt it. He could show up and give an effort that was less than, you know, his ability. Cause he's shown that he has ability to be a quarterback except in the playoffs. Um, and so where, where was he at the original, what, 10 years of his career? Right. Right. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. Cause he definitely was on a downward spiral before that trade or before right. that, that draft pick. Right. Well, and I mean, All right. gr- well, granted speaking, he, he, did, he did win a, he did win a super bowl for green Bay. So we'll give him that. But, Come on. A long, long, long time right. ago. That right. is like ancient news now. That's why I've always right. prefaced my qualified my comments of recently. I think it's been over ten years now yep. that he won in that Super Bowl. Hasn't been back since. He did get the one, but this is a what have you done for me lately? Well, he has been the the Nothing. champion during the regular season and apparently that will continue. Well, right. speaking of Jordan Love, they traded up. In the first round to draft Jordan Love, that really ticked off Aaron Rodgers. Now the talk is, what do we do with Jordan Love? I mean, I don't know if you know, last year uh, Aaron Rodgers had COVID or what, failed a COVID test, so he could not play. That was the week that the Packers played the Kansas City Chiefs. So I got a good, close look of how good Jordan Love was. And our take, I don't know if you remember, after that game was, the biggest winner after that game was Aaron Rodgers because it was proven that Jordan Love was not a good quarterback. He has been in the wings now for two and a half, three years, and he just looked way overwhelmed. And so the talk is, well, does anyone even want him now? Rumor is the Packers could get a second-round pick for him. And if someone would offer him a second-round pick, uh, like maybe Seattle, they're starting over, they're rebuilding. They have a right. lot of extra picks up picks up there. Why not uh, you know, try to get Jordan Love? Uh, any thoughts on where Jordan Love might end up? I think Seattle is a great spot for him, maybe Tampa Bay. Um, I think, you know... I just I feel bad for Jordan Love. He he's a he was a solid college quarterback. That's why he went in the first round. He was a solid and he's had no career because he's been playing in the shadow of Aaron Rodgers. And it 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 also makes me think how many other players that could be great have failed because they've been in the shadow of some other player. Right? If Drew yeah. Bledsoe hadn't gotten hurt, would we really know Tom Brady? If that's right? a good question. If Steve Young didn't get um, 
If Steve Young didn't get traded to San Francisco from Tampa Bay, would we have known Steve Young? Right? It's right. It, it's that big what if game. But I think I think Love falls into this category of you know he's got to be frustrated about his career just sitting there playing second fiddle to this cat who obviously doesn't care about the team. I'll just say during that one week, Jordan Love looked failed. horrible. He and failed. So I don't know he what's going to happen. And so you now Patrick Mahomes, his very first time out there even during preseason he looked good Dak Prescott very first time he played as a rookie during preseason he looked amazing these quarterbacks who end up being stars you see the stardom right Right. away and and so here you you just didn't see anything that could are we making too much over just this one performance that came in year three when he had no previous experience Maybe so, but whatever. Right. The Packers also see him during the practice every week, and they are saying, no, we want to go with this octogenarian uh, Aaron Rodgers <laughs> who can't win for us in the postseason. That's much better off than going with Jordan Love, who we spent a first-round pick on. Right. All right. Also talking about trades, Russell Wilson got traded this week for a he Kings did. ransom. He went from Seattle to the Denver Broncos, which I hate the Denver Broncos. I am a huge <laughs> Kansas City Chiefs fan, and there are big rivals of them and the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh-huh. And so I, I'm a little worried about that, that he went to the Broncos. But then I'm comforted by this fact. Uh, he played last year for the Seattle Seahawks, he did. and they lost 10 games. So is he is he lost a step? Why did it? Why did Seattle do so poorly with Russell Wilson this last year? It could have been a combination of Russell losing a step, Pete Carroll losing a step, Seattle just a, a rebuilding phase in Seattle's. You know, it, it's been a long time since Seattle's had their heyday. I think it was time for everybody to kind of move on. But um, Russell Wilson got traded to a division where he's the number four quarterback out of four teams. And, yes, right. And, and so I don't know if that was a good jump for him. Like, if if he really wanted to make a splash, I would have assumed he would have jumped to a division where he could have been the number two or even number one quarterback out of the the teams in that division. So that way he could have an, a division title under his belt or something. But it's going to be interesting to see because I think Russell. I think Russell's an all star quarterback. I think he has great talent. I think. He's a he's a great quarterback. I just don't know if he's going to fit into this Denver style of play and rebuilding and all sorts of things to that effect. So it's going to be interesting to see. And, and think think about this. He Russell Wilson went to a team who just gave up a king's ransom in draft right. picks to get right. him. So do they have anyone left in the cupboard? Any uh, are they not undercut their ability to draft new players in the future? Right. That's a risky move on his part. He's now going to a team where I'm not sure they're going to have the support for him. Right. Uh, but, you know, it also, you know he's not winning the division. No. No, he's not. And I, I don't his, see how they're... And his commitment to, to Denver has got to be a five-year commitment with it, to at least be in the, the W column. Right, if he's gonna if he's gonna division if he's at least gonna make it to an AFC championship game or something to that effect, which I don't see that coming up anytime soon, it's gotta be five years with the King's ransom they traded away with all their draft picks. They're gonna have to get draft picks over the next two or three years, develop the team, develop Russell's play style in Denver, and then he's gonna start seeing some great success. I 
I think it would be a testament to Russell's ability if they find success within five years. Let's move on here. Uh, one more story to talk about here before we end this podcast. We have Calvin Ridley. Now, you and I oh, have been talking guy. about gambling over this last year. And now that you right. uh, have allowed for sports gambling in the United States, this whole it brought in a ton of new money, millions of dollars, millions of right. dollars to the NFL. So gambling is not going away. It's brought in too much money. Right. Uh, it, it's the wave of the future. Despite yours and my best effort to discourage the young ones to, to gamble because it's just stupid and foolhardy to part right. with your money. Uh, Those that say a fool and his money are soon parted. Despite that, the big fear from the NFL is that if you allow for gambling, it might hurt the, uh, the product itself, the integrity of the game. Because eventually players who are not the smartest there are some idiots right. out there who are players might get themselves caught up in the gambling world and then have the ability to influence games by taking games by doing things like that and that would destroy that would very seriously undermine the nfl if you had players out there that were uh, you know taking games and so there's this hard fast rule absolutely no players can bet on nfl games well, what happened here was Calvin Ridley, a wide receiver who made $11 million per year for the Atlanta Falcons, bet, I think, $1,500 right. on the NFL. And so um, that came back this last week to bite him in the butt. And he has ended up being suspended now for one year. That's a huge consequence there for one simple bet. Any thoughts on the Calvin Ridley situation? It's, it's horrible. But you got to look at the situation as a whole. If Calvin Ridley was in a position to throw the game like the Chicago White Sox did for the World Series, yeah, that that's bad for the sport. But if you look at Calvin, you're like, dude, you took 1500 bucks and you bet on your own team and you had no influence on the outset. The NFL is all about making money. And when you start cutting into how they make their money and their image of making their money, they will straight up murder you. They will destroy your career. Um, and I think that's what I, they're trying to do. I found the interest. I found it interesting that in baseball you get banned for life. I'm thinking Shoeless Joe Jackson, Pete Rose. Pete Rose. They were alleged to have been involved in betting, and they got banned for life. This guy gets one year, and he's back in. So I'm not sure the NFL is sending that strong of a message. Well, Michael Jordan. But we'll have to wait and see if. If, if you watch the hey, Last Dance, hey. Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman, B.J. Armstrong, they all bet on the Bulls. And they were like, mm, you're the best team in basketball, so you're okay. They are the best team in basketball. Are you trying they to suggest are. that the Bulls are not the best team and nope. that Michael Jordan is nope. not the greatest of all nope. time? Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, and I will throw hands against people who try okay. to say differently. But and any oh. of you LeBron fans out there, I, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. You come find me. I'm six foot one, 300 pounds. We can have this conversation. Um, They're just wrong. Anyone who, has, right. who says LeBron is the greatest of all time has never seen Michael Jordan play. That's, that's, no. that's just idiocy. That's idiotic. There's no you can even compare the two. I still remember when he came back from his retirement. I was at the KCI airport, and that was just the biggest news. Yes, Michael Jordan is coming back. And uh, whenever you watched him, you just knew he was going to win that game. It oh, is an electric. amazing athlete to watch. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a complete and utter mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for our marketing efforts. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Tri- Plus City Marketing for our technical and computer support. 